It's Friday the 13th, and this is Real Talk. Jesperson with Hoyles and Brooks. It's going to be a great show. This show is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well, the world's first publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company. They're in the business of making business make sense. I just came up with that one right now. I feel like we should sell that to them for like uh, a thousand Yoshis. If you want to know what that means, go ahead and see the team at, led by CEO Adam O'Brien, proudly based out of Edmonton, right at the top of the sponsors page at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to check in with Olympic climber. Sean McColl, how cool is that? Olympic climber. Hey man, uh, what do you do? Oh, I'm like a, I'm an, I'm an associate accountant at a firm that we take care of. What do you do? I'm an Olympic climber. Let's talk about what you do. <laughs> That's the nightmare at the cocktail party. You run into a guy like Sean McCall. He's like, what do you do? I'm like, I produce a thing. What do you do? Oh, I, I scale up massive things and I'm among the best in the world. As a matter of fact, the reigning world champion. That's right. I mean, I personally am glad that there's a pandemic because then you don't have to do those cocktail parties and you don't have to do those <laughs> small talks. We're you back. Know? We're back to some cocktail parties now. Right. Isn't everything back? Big story we're following. The Alberta government looks like rumors are it might be walking back. It's it's walk back. Uh, well, it's going to return to potentially. What is it? Test, trace, isolate. That's what everybody wants to see. And so we're expecting to see it. It's, I mean, everyone's trying to figure out what's going on now. Has it been leaked? That the Alberta government's getting set to to walk back some of this or uh, is the official opposition employing some gamesmanship to make it happen? All this happening is we talked to former Alberta chief medical officer of health, Dr. James Talbot. I just pushed out a clip this morning from our conversation with him this week. And uh, that's the interview. You've got to watch the interview in its entirety. He's a he's a cheeky monkey, that Dr. Talbot. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? He's a, he's a cheeky monkey. He's got this. He's got this. Uh, I mean, he's a total, obviously respected professional. I'm just being an idiot right now because it's Friday and I've got jump in my step and the weather's beautiful and the weekend's coming. And this is our last show in a week. We're going to take some time next week to ourselves. The team is. So we're looking forward to that. A heads up. Real soccer's next week. A great chance to catch up on past episodes coming up on, you know, I mean, like 175 of them. I know there's some hardcores that have seen every single one, but I bet you there are some great interviews out there. If you missed Tom Cochran yesterday, you've got to check that out. What a delight he was. But back to Dr. Talbot. He's he's not he's he's a, a classy individual. He's a professional and you can tell that he's a loyal friend. He comes on and he says, I've known Dr. Dina Hinshaw. I've respected Alberta's chief medical officer of health. I've respected her for more than 20 years and I respect her now. And I think it's okay to pull back the curtain a little bit and even let our audience know. I don't think this is betraying any trust that when we book Dr. Talbot, he says to us off air, like, I'm not coming on to pile on Dr. Dina Hinshaw. I'm not coming on the show to drag her through the mud. That's not what this is going to be about. We say, fine, that's great. That's not what we're looking for. We just want real talk. We want to know how you actually feel, what you'd be doing if you were in the position right now. But but here's where I get to the cheeky part. He's got this kind of we're talking about serious business, a pandemic, right? Thousands of people have died. Hundreds of thousands of people have been sick. Yes, there's reason for optimism. Yes, a whole bunch of people are getting vaccinated. Yes, we all want this to be done. 
we're not quite done yet. And so we asked him about a fourth wave and we asked him about kids under 12 and returning to school and not contact tracing and not isolating. And he gets this kind of subtle smile. Sometimes he gets this kind of gleam in his eye. And that's when, you know, Dr. Talbot is telling you things without spelling them out. And I would say that the last three or four minutes of that interview are probably the best where he really gets into it. So if you didn't catch that entire interview, we encourage you to check it out. And of course, today, after we talk to, uh, you know, the world champion Olympian climber, Sean McCall, we're going to get into talk around a federal election. It's expected the prime minister will be visiting Rita Hall tomorrow. It's expected that Canadians will be going to the polls this fall. We've been talking about this for a long time, right? So probably a 36-day campaign, which would mean Canadians can expect a federal election on September 20th. David Moskrup is the author of Too Dumb for Democracy and a columnist for the Washington Post. Jarrett Campbell is a political strategist and Emma May, uh, an entrepreneur and uh, former uh, senior staffer to an Alberta premier, to Premier Prentice, will be joining us to, to hash things out, talk about the federal election looming what are the issues? Uh, you know, I mean, I love I don't even know what we're going to get into. I like conversations like these. The, our, our real talk roundtables on Fridays are always designed to be we're sitting around having coffee, right? We're sitting around having beers like these are sort of how conversations evolve. We've got some background. We've got some interesting points to talk about. But for the most part, the guests are the stars of the show. And so we'll see where they take that conversation. Plus, of course, as mentioned in the intro, it is Friday the 13th. And I've not yet pulled the team here in studio. I don't know if either of you are superstitious. I'm seeing from facial expressions. Well, you appear to be even keel this morning. Did you wake up knowing that it was Friday the 13th? Yep. It was on your radar? Yep. You feeling all right about it? Yep. Okay. Brooks, are you a superstitious guy? Nah, no, I mean, you know, sports superstitions and all that kind of stuff. But Friday the 13th doesn't phase me. Doesn't get into anybody's nah, grill. No. Okay, me neither. I'm all right with Friday the 13th. But again, these are the dumb things that people say before something really bad happens. Well, though, and like it's kind of looking at everything that kind of the shit that hit the fan yesterday. Just the number of things that were going down talking about. Yeah, there's probably a reversal on this uh decision by the province around like how we're approaching covid people should be people should be proud of that if if we're talking about people that demonstrated if, if this i mean i think a lot of people are probably going to be considering this a win wouldn't you think i yes but i also want to say you know this government has never done anything that doesn't serve them in some way so i've seen some tweets go out talking about you know that this is to reinstate testing, tracing, and isolation protocols would ensure that Kenny got gets the numbers to support a narrative that Trudeau shouldn't call an election <laughs> okay. during a pandemic. Okay, sure. I mean, and and sure, and maybe. And everyone's probably always going to... If I'm Jason Kenny right now, that I'm going, okay, so you want me to walk it back? So he walks it back, and then people are like, you're just doing this so you can whatever. And he's but like, yes. but you want me to not walk it back? Yes, no, no, no. and. It's, no. it's both and, because okay, this sure. guy has sure. shown... It doesn't matter. If Jason a, Kenny can't hold a candle to Justin Trudeau. He can't. I'm sorry. People can sit here with policy and everything else, but this is why he can't stand him. Hmm. Because if he winds up debating him in an election, or if it was Jason Kenney leading the conservatives versus Justin Trudeau leading the liberals, which I'd love to see, by the way. But Kenny can't beat him in the narrative department. He can't. Everything he's tried in the narrative department has flopped. Can he beat him tactically? Can he beat him with knives out? Can he meet him in the beat him in the games of politics? Can he beat him in the back alleys like the Flyers used to do in the 1970s with Billy Barber and Bobby Clark? Maybe, probably. Kenny doesn't fuck around that way. He doesn't. 
But when it comes to narratives around all of a sudden, Jason Kenney right now is going to feign concern that he's super worried about a fourth wave and plead that Justin Trudeau cancel the election. Yeah, right. Nobody would buy it. You wouldn't buy it. You wouldn't buy it. I wouldn't buy it. Nobody would buy it. All of a sudden he cares. All of a sudden he's super concerned. No No way. No, I don't think that it's going to be concerned, but I'm just saying that this decision does not come because he's concerned. It comes because there is some there is it comes because he is facing massive mounting pressure. That's why it comes. It comes because hundreds of people have shown up every single day. Right outside McDougal Center in Calgary, in Red Deer, outside the Alberta legislature in Edmonton. You pay attention to what's going on in social media. School's supposed to go back in a few weeks. Well, I I'm think less sco- than a few weeks. Yeah. And schools are saying we're going to we're going to instate uh, mask mandates. Yeah. You've got that. Plus, you have uh, the health minister's good buddy. Hartley Harris named to the Alberta Health Services board. This guy is an electrical engineer. A lot of people are going, what the hell's up with that? Um, going back to I mean, people are going back and people will say, well, yeah, so what? So like just because someone is a minister's friend, they don't qualify for public service. Is that what you're saying? I don't know. People were combing through Mr. Harris's Twitter account before it got locked down yesterday and they're finding references back to like 2010 references that I would have on my Twitter that are like great snowboarding trip, bro. See you later, bro. Like those are these two, Shantro and Harris. Now he's on the Alberta Health Services Board with Jack Mintz. Uh, so Great. people are paying attention to that story. And then there's the horrific story out of the uh, Polish uh, parish in Edmonton. Our Lady Queen of Polish, Our Lady Queen of Poland parish uh, video servicing yesterday, originally from Vice News. And then it just took off from there. A priest basically calling the discoveries of mass graves at residential school sites lies and manipulation. We'll share some of that video with you later. It's unbelievable. Guess what? He apologized. Uh Uh-huh. I'm sure. Probably totally changed his mind, too, which is great to hear. Uh, I don't even know what. Those are one of the stories where we feel like we should talk about this, but I'm not really sure what there is to say about it, except WTF. That's kind of how I feel about it. Uh, We will get into it. We'll play you some of that video. We have it, of course, uh, subtitled, and I have the dubious honor of reading the words that he said, but uh, it'll blow your mind if you haven't heard it already. Unbelievable. I appreciate stories like this, as a matter of fact, because it reminds us of the work that there is still to be done. Let's get to our Olympian in just a second. First, I want to remind you that there's a whole bunch going on. Do I even say it? We're talking about back to school. Do I even say before the leaves fly and then the snow falls? I mean, sorry, sorry, but it is going to happen. And that's why it's worth paying attention to the fact that August 26th through the 5th of September, the ESO, the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra, is back together. As a matter of fact, back together for the first time since March of 2020 in its entirety at Edmonton's famed William Horlack Park. This is an absolutely amazing opportunity with Symphony Under the Sky to get outdoors. So many different opportunities for music fans of all ages, from all backgrounds, even all symphonic preferences. If you like to hear Hollywood soundtracks played by Symphony or you want to hear Tchaikovsky, you can get both. You'll find all the details at windspearcenter.com. Also, big shout out to our friends at Friesen Brothers who want to remind you it's going to be a great weekend to be getting on your grill. Don't forget that from Hatch 
New Mexico at the 16 Friesen Brothers locations across the province of Alberta. They're featuring these hatch chilies. They're a great substitute for bell peppers. If you haven't tried them, try them out on your salad, on your burger. Put them on the grill themselves. You know how you just cut the top and the bottom? Fillet, lay it out almost. You know what I'm talking about, Sam. Like how you might put a rug down in an area in your home. You just put the, you, you you put the pepper down like that. It's just lightly brushed with some olive oil, some some cracked pepper. You like it, a pepper? Friesen Brothers has those hatch chilies. They're Alberta grown, Alberta owned at Friesen Brothers for more than 65 years. Well, of course, uh, the eyes of the world on the Olympic Games over the past couple of weeks and Canadians making us proud in a number of disciplines, including some of them relatively new. That includes our next guest. He's a world champion and an Olympic sport climber. Sean McCall, kind enough to join us. Sean, are you at home right now in Vancouver? Is that where we're getting you? Yeah, I just got home a few days ago. Oh, well, welcome home. Congratulations. I mean, this obviously, I would imagine, regardless of how you place, regardless of how things wind up just competing, I mean, wearing your country's colors have to be an unbelievable experience. Yeah, it's, it is totally that. And at the end of the day, the numbers, they we're all competitors. We want to do well. We want to be on the podium or make finals or advance or win. We've all won before. Uh I hope you can still hear me. It looks like my it looks like your my, video's frozen, but we can hear you just fine. So we're all good. Awesome. Awesome. I'll just kind of turn it on and off. But um, yeah, awesome experience. And just I don't know, the numbers at the end of the day are, are hard to justify. But, you know, we train all basically, you know, decades for this. And so we yeah, we we showed up. What is it? I mean, to see a sport like this, have you you've been climbing since you were a kid? When did you get involved in climbing for the first? How did how did it start? Does it start on the jungle gym on the playground and then you just keep getting better and better going higher and higher? So I started when I was 10. I started with my family. Uh, we wanted to try a new sport altogether. We uh, we just got passes for the local climbing gym. We uh, just yeah, we just started climbing. It was, it was weird. We wanted to just do a new sport together. We we yeah passes at 10 and it kind of took off from there i did my first competition when i was i don't know three months later i went in the beginner category uh it went really really well i won i got my first climbing outside paid for uh through the the i guess the the prize at the time they used to give out prizes now it's more official just a medal and uh, i got to go outside climbing for the first time and it kind of just took off from there what was it like to see the sport that you've loved uh, since you're a young man? I mean, since you're like 10 years old or so uh, in the Olympic Games, I know it was kind of neat. People are looking at, at surfing and skateboarding and sport climbing and all these new additions. It seems like the Olympics is kind of hitting this this refresh. It's got to be exciting for the sport. Yeah, so I was working on my sport getting into the Olympics since 2011, 2012. And to see this nine, 10 year journey come to fruition is I didn't really think about it too, too much because I was there as a competitor. I, I am president of the athletes commission. I should have probably started with that. And so I advocate for athletes rights. I try to see the, I try to put a white hat on and see, okay, how can I make this better for the athletes? What, what are not the way people are taking advantage of the athletes, but what from a competition perspective or from an administration perspective or an international federation perspective, how can we make it better for the athletes? So there's different tiers. There's small, medium, large. There's some things where uh, we want this, but it's impossible. It's, it's, it's just too hard. Like we'd love to have every World Cup competitor, if they manage to make top 20, get a $5,000 prize purse. It's just not possible right now for a sport. But you look at things like, PGA golf, where if you're ranked 100 and you finish 100th, I, I don't know how much they're getting, but Lots. it's more than 
our, our first place. Yeah. And so realistically, I'm just working for it. And, you know, I went to the Olympics as an athlete first, uh, an athlete representative second. And I did get to do a, a little bit of work uh, as, as chair and it was tons of fun. Uh, but yeah, I went there as an athlete. I needed to compete first, do that as a priority. And for me, it was just a lifelong dream to become an Olympian. As I said, I started climbing when I was 10 and I fell in love with a sport that wasn't in the Olympics. Uh, eventually 2016, it did get accepted to the Olympics the last four, five years, being a pretty big whirlwind, but managed to stamp that ticket um, and uh, yeah, always have it now. Sean, we've got some footage of you here. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the World Championships back in 2016 where you're climbing. It's just, to me, it just re every time I watch a climber, I don't have the body for a climbing. I don't have the strength for climbing. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. Paris. Uh, uh, but it's, yeah, this was in Paris, right? So, I mean, it takes a special kind of fitness to do what you do and to compete at a high level, let alone become a, a world champion. You're, you're what? You're 33 now, right? Yeah. Is your yeah, sport? Well, I was going to ask you about that because, I mean, you watch the marathon. There's I mean, there's competitors into their 40s that are I mean, it, there are different sports where age appears to be maybe not as relevant. What's it like in climbing? Where are you at in your career? So I do. I try to do a lot of reading. I consider myself educated. And I know that with marathon, it's it, it's not that it helps, but it they can endure the pain on their bodies. And that's why where the experience and the age helps. I'm not helping myself being 33. Let's just start with that. Um, I'm probably past the point of my, the, the peak of my career where I can go out and be like, I'm going to win this competition. And I have the highest statistical percentage of winning. I can still win a competition. I'm just saying my statistical analysis, whatever my, my, there's a lower chance that I'll win, but I can still win. And that's the whole point of the competition. The reason why at 33, it's okay is, is mostly experience. And so 2016, what is this? Five years ago. And I'm kind of the same climber as I am there. Am I learning or am I getting a lot better? Probably not. Maybe some of the cool styles and stuff. But, you know, here I'm an aggressive climber. Uh, everyone actually knows that as me. I climb aggressively. I take risks. It's actually fun to watch. I don't take my time. I don't really second guess. I just kind of go with the flow, go with it. I need strength at the top of the climb because I don't have that pure, long endurance, like lean build. So if I kind of take too long at the bottom, I'll be too tired once I get to the top. So I, yeah, take risks. I actually sometimes take tons of risks, especially when I make mistakes low on the route, or I know that I need to get higher in order to advance to the next round. And it usually pays off. I can make the decisions really quickly. I usually know it's funny. I always, uh, I've been studying chess for a little bit now. I'm not super good, but I do really love it. And it's funny. You listen to the interviews of Magnus Carlsen He'll be playing a game where he has you know, 20, 20 minutes, 30 minutes for the whole game. And he looks at the board. He knows exactly what he's going to do right away. And then he spends two, three minutes. And if he's playing a two-hour game, sometimes longer, just to make sure that that is the move. And then he usually ends up moving it. And that's why he's one of the best blitz players of all time. Can I confess to you that my hands are sweating watching video of you climb? Here you go. You've just been introduced to climbing. That's, well, that just happens. Well, I, I watch lots of climbing, Sean, but from the ground and I can't even imagine what it's like. Are you this is obviously competitive climbing in an indoor. What do you call it? Like a course, right? Is that what you call yeah, it? Yeah. Climbing so, wall, basically. Yeah, it's an artificial climbing wall. And the course setters have set this route in the hopes that only one person reaches the top. Ah, got it. So how do you do when you're out and about? I mean, you're, you're in what, what a beautiful part of the country you're in. 
Um, and of course, we're talking to you from a pretty beautiful part of the country as well, outside in Jasper National Park, Banff National Park, some amazing areas that climbers target, ice climbers too, of course, as you well know. Um, are you are you are you like a free climber that would just blow people's minds out there as well? There's a whole other element to this that would have nothing to do with competition except for what you generate within yourself when you're out there with Mother Nature, right? So different parts of climbing. Climbing is, yeah, it's such a big bubble. Uh, I guess I've never done ice climbing. Hmm. Uh, even ice is like, uh, yeah, I've just never done it. Uh, it does verge on the parts with ice climbing be a little bit on the unsafer side. It is still very, very safe because generally you don't fall. Uh, but for me, I do sport climbing, which is the competition part of climbing. I do outdoor climbing, so lead climbing. I do outdoor bouldering. I technically do outdoor trad climbing, but if there's any trad uh, purists out there, they're going to probably say that I don't do a lot of trad climbing, but it's something that I really, really love. Is that traditional? Uh, is that what that means? Yeah, where you where you put in your your cams and nuts, and even I don't know enough the lingo, even though I can do it. Yeah, uh, It's more of a, I really love to do it, I just don't have enough time to do it. And so those are the types of routes that you can go and do up El Capitan safely. Then there's the last part, which is free climbing. So most people have seen the film Free Solo. Yeah. Alex Honnold, greatest free climber of all time. I have had the honor of meeting him. He's a crazy guy. Uh, I don't do that. Um, and I don't do it just because it's not, it's just not my thing. I am, I'm a rule-based analytical math guy. I, I just can't. I know that the probability is there. And if it's a one in a hundred, that means that once I go climbing a hundred times, I'm probably going to fall once. I just, I just can't. And he is amazing. He is better than the gold medalist that won at the Olympics in his domain. Wow. And so just like levels of magnitude and he is at the top of that domain. He can do it. He can control his emotions, his heart rate, all of that stuff in mid climb 500 feet off the ground of the you, way higher than you've that, got to be wired in a way that most people couldn't even understand i think yeah. I mean, like to state the obvious there's the physical strength required we're even watching you climbing there in paris and i mean just i, I can't even imagine how you do you do like the squeezy exercises do you have those old school springs where you strengthen your fingers because you're holding your entire body up suspended with one arm just looking around like looking to say hi to your friends in the stands like it's remarkable to see i can't even imagine and then you talk about these free climbers then there's the mental game right where you're not going to let your brain start going what happens if i fall like what happens if i fall you can't start thinking like that yeah i know with free climbing they, they don't think about falling hmm. they are at the ground on the ground and they think about the top they never think about falling and i've practiced this in, in training once you think about falling you've fallen your foot slips your hand slips you're already you're already out of it mentally and so that's something that alex honnold is so phenomenally good at he, he he i've read a few a few stories about him i've listened to podcasts and he says that once he leaves the ground he's never thinking about falling he's thinking about the top and the only times that he's ever thought about falling, he slips in the first 10 feet. Mm. And then you're like, but if you slip in the first 10 feet, and it's just, for me, I'm just, I can't do it. But yeah. he is so good at that. And, and yeah, and I, I love what, what I love. Sean, you're just, you're, you're, you're like the typical, uh, I don't know, typical, 
But like you know, this Canadian Olympian here where we're finding a way and I'm a little bit guilty of it, too, because you're just an easy and fun guy to talk to. But we're, we're diverting attention away from you. You're just back for. Let me remind people like you're, you're the 11 time open Canadian national champion. You have five World Cup victories. You're a four time overall world champion. You're the only competitor in World Cup history to go top eight in every single discipline. I mean, th- this is a remarkable career for yourself. Do you as a as an athlete like this, an elite athlete an Olympic, you will forever now be an Olympian. Um, you talk about your role as president with the Athletes Commission. I know that you've done some coaching as well. You've been one of the head and assistant coaches for the Canadian youth national teams for a number of years. You, you, you strike me as as quite an ambassador for your sport. Is that where ultimately, I mean, you just competed. You're not. But as you look long term, do you feel like is this a calling for you in a sense to to, to really get more Canadian kids climbing? I mean, 100 percent. I, I've always been fascinated with it and I've always been, I look at what I can do in climbing and yeah, I can train, I can compete. I love it. I love it. I get to travel. And then at some point during the day, you kind of run out of hours you can train. And I don't know if I actually realized this when I started working on behalf of Canadians or stuff like that, but I kind of realized that training and climbing only by yourself, even with friends and everything, there's I want more. It's not that it's not enough because I'm super tired after training and all that, but I can't fill it with, I can't train for 24 hours a day. It's close kind of, but I, I like, I like doing it. I like learning. I like pushing the boundaries of the sport. I, I see a rule and I say, Hey, I can abuse this rule. I need to go to the rules commission and fix it or mm-hmm. other people are going to abuse the rule. That's, that's kind of just how it works. After that, I see the way that, or I saw the way that some athletes were being taken advantage of, whether it be on the international level or X, Y, Z, it doesn't really matter. And so I try to fix those holes. And Canada as a federation is quite young. We have only been really on the World Cup scene for kind of since I started going on the World Cup scene. And so because it's young, it can be helped into, into basically growing into an organization that's better than say most others because every federation has pros and cons and the european federations are the ones that are best built and so you see some of the federations they're they're funded they get two hundred thousand euros a year for competitors and then the cons for that federation might be oh they have a little bit of hard time between their athletes because they force them to wear this certain sponsor which conflicts with the personal sponsor which again it's just a trade-off the whole season paid for you kind of just have to wear what you got to wear sean did you say two hundred thousand euros per competitor it might not be i don't think it's per competitor i think it's per team oh so team, the team okay. is it's like five pr- approximately 10. 300 grand ish yeah. yeah yeah about 300 grand and uh which is a ton of money uh, i don't know the I don't know the books of my own federation. I do know that I've had now a couple of world championships paid for, which is super nice. It's always nice when you get funded, but I've been competing now for, well, climbing 23 years, World Cup Series, World down to 12 years about. Mm-hmm. And I now, what, 98% of that is all funded by myself. So my funded, wow. And so when I save money on flights or hotels or carpool, or I used to take trains everywhere, I save a lot of money. And then when I started to make a little bit more money, instead of, Getting on the train, I drive a car. So much more comfortable, so much faster. Uh, now, to I'm be clear, situation. we're not talking. We're not talking about you rented a car, like you had a driver who picked no, you no, up no, and no. opened like the I bag. Had a, had, had a freshly whatever. ironed copy of the New York Times for you. No, no like, like a okay, yeah. Prius, and right. you know, so right. I can go five hundred kilometers on a, a thousand kilometers on a tank. And no, no, it was just yeah. renting the cheapest car I could get. 
I always see the price go up and do I want to get a, an SUV or a sports car? And I'm like, no, I want to save money. I'm like this, this, this stuff's expensive. Like, are you out totally there? Are you out there pounding model. the pavement and are you knocking on doors and are you lining up your own sponsorship? Give us some insight into what the, you know, the Canadian Olympic athlete can be doing here. The hustle that comes with, it. I mean, you're doing all the training, I, obviously. I, I, I do. I now do have representation. I have a manager now and it takes a lot off my plate. I only need to do 60% of it because then they're doing all, yeah, a whole bunch of works. I can't even really explain it. They, they do the stuff that I do just a little bit better and then they have better connections. But yes, I've done this every, yeah, all by myself. And it's it's weird. People talk about, you know, building a brand and telling your story. And there's lots of keywords, which I'll definitely forget because I just I just kind of <laughs> I focus on what I want to tell. And so when social media kind of started with Instagram, I joined Instagram in 2014. And it was actually my former coach that said, Hey, Sean, you've been blogging. You love blogging. You love making your blogs, writing, telling your story. Have you heard of Instagram? And I was like, no. And he's like, you basically tell a short story, but it has to have a photo. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, perfect. People like photos. They need something to look at. And that was when Instagram was a bit more, I'll say real. Not that Instagram isn't real right now, because a lot of people do post stuff that's real. But uh, it was less of everyone knows what it is now. And it, <laughs> it wasn't that at the time. It was yeah. more of a storyboard. And so I would just tell my story. I try to still, I try to still tell my story on Instagram. It usually works. Um, and I still actually really love it. Sean, are we going to see you in Paris 2024? I hope so. I really do. Uh, the, it's only about two years now to the qualification process. Yeah. It's all, uh, it's, I, it's skipping that year, it really fast forwards, doesn't it? It almost kind of feels yeah, like you're, yeah. yeah. The year was supposed to be 2021 rest. Then 2022, 2023, train and qualify in 23. And then 24 is the games. Now with the year gone, it's no rest, but it's actually easier for me because as you get older, when you get to that close to retirement, whether that's in two, four, eight years, if you take a year off, sometimes you just can't get back, whether that's from motivation or life or there's so many other things. But as a 20 year old, you know, I've got, I got injured when I was whatever age off for six to eight months. I bounced right back. I'm a little kid. It's just like elastic. Oh, injured. Oh, it's okay. Get back training, climbing. Yeah. World cups again. Now. Yeah. If I have like a seriously bad injury, like, I don't know, to tear my ACL or something. I can say, like I've done the Olympics, stamped it. I can say now if I, if I <laughs> rip my ACL, yeah, it's horrendous, but I kind of did what I came to do and maybe Paris would be off the table. But as long as I don't do something like that, I'm good to go. I know. I don't even know why I'm putting this out into the universe. I don't even know why I am. But I hope we don't look back and say Sean McCall on Friday the 13th went on Real Talk and said, if I tear my ACL. <laughs> but we, are you a superstitious guy? Uh, kind of. More like competition superstitious. Yeah. Superstitious. You have your routine and everything before? Yeah. 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 Like knock on wood. My desk made of wood, so I knocked on it. <laughs> there you go. I'm good. knocking on ours, too. I'm knocking on the wood desk in front of us, too. I hope we get to cheer you on. I feel like this audience, you should see our live chat right now. People are people are for, forging a connection with you. Just wait till the podcast drops. You'll be hearing from people. I think your Instagram is going to get a bump, too. Is it McCall, Sean? Is that your Instagram handle? That is awesome. Well, Sean, let me ask you this in closing. It was it was an interesting games. I mean, uh, you know, you're president of the Athletes Commission, which puts you in certainly a unique circumstance. I appreciate you sharing with us some of the issues on your radar. I think funding is such a huge one. And I don't think Canadians are really aware of the hustle that some of these athletes, especially the ones that aren't 
the high, the ones that have the Visa and McDonald's sponsorships, right? There's there's hundreds of other athletes doing an amazing job. The the games were significant for a number of reasons. Obviously, in the middle of a pandemic, I mean that's pretty remarkable that they even happened. But there were a lot of storylines as well, including non-binary and trans athletes, including on Canada's women's soccer team and and in women's powerlifting. Uh, we saw an interesting circumstance where an American shot putter, a track athlete, was was being investigated right up until her mom tragically passed away for a for a, a, a sort of a political the crossed arms uh, you know um, gesture that she made on the on the medal podium. There there were young athletes. People were talking about age of competition the gymnasts always seem to be the youngest ones but now you got skateboarders that are 13 there at the games i mean all these kinds of storylines that are really i mean they're married into the world of sport and woven into the world of sport but there's other issues at play we're reminded of the humanity of athletics um a pretty interesting i mean did, did you pick up on uh, did the olympic games have a bit of a different feel or unique feel in that sense do people maybe feel part of a movement that could be bigger than their individual or even the collective sport i think i think definitely in that last sentence you touched touched on it and it is kind of about the movement and as the world changes everything within the world needs to change and i was aware of i like to read so i like to that kind of calms me down and i was aware of yeah 75 80 percent of what you said pretty actually like a lot like with the young skateboarders and I uh, actually had the opportunity to meet Sky Brown. I actually happened to be sponsored by Visa. So like I have great sponsors now. It's actually pretty funny uh, looking back, but I got to meet Sky Brown and I got to meet this. I, I don't even know how old she was at the time. She must've been 11 or 12 and she's a phenomenal athlete and basically the nicest person you'll ever meet. And it was weird because we're shooting a commercial, but we're kind of in the, the green room and she's just kind of skateboarding around in this big gymnasium. And she was, she was a kid. And here's me, 32 year old, like taking a break and she's just, you know, shooting hoops, playing like it was it was amazing to see. And so I feel like with the Olympics and again, uh, is this different from other Olympics? Well, this was my first Olympics. So all I know are these covid based Olympics. So everything I did at the Olympics, that is 100 percent precedence. Mm. Yes, I've talked a lot to people. They told me it was really weird. It was it was very, very different. And I thought or I think I know what the Olympics are normally. But actually, I don't because I haven't been. So, you know, again, hope for 2024, then I can give a better representation. But yes, they were definitely different um, because everyone's wearing masks. You didn't have the opportunity to really meet as many people. I saw a few people that, yeah, I would have liked to see or talk to. Uh, I actually got to talk to a whole bunch of Canadians because of the proximity of the Team Canada House, even the short two minute conversations waiting for the elevators going up and down. Uh, I was thought there was a couple of swimmers that I was like, I think they're silver medalists, but I don't want to say, Hey, are you guys silver medalists? And they, this, and then they say, Oh no, we're not. And so you would say, Hey, so how did it go? Or what are you in? I say, Oh, we're in swimming. We got some silver medals. And I was like, Oh, I'm so dumb. Why didn't I just say that? So it's funny. And he said, Oh, congratulations. You guys swam so well. I I watched the race. I watched all the races. And so you feel, you feel dumb when you do that, but then everyone's giggling. Everyone's laughing. It's so hard to keep up with everything that's going on in the game. People would come on and be like, Hey, did you see Canada won another gold medal? I was like, no, you guys, I was at training for the last three hours. We don't really have phones at training in that. So it's like, but 
the whole experience, awesome. You get back at the end of the day, get to say congratulations, get to see a few medals and all communally, the Canada House, we're really happy. So very cool. Thanks for sharing with us the experience. You know, so many of us are just, our imaginations are painting these pictures as you're taking us behind the scenes. It's been really great to spend some time with you here on the show. Thank you so much for representing our country with, with, with such grace and dignity and class. And we wish you well moving forward, Sean. I, I hope we're watching you in Paris three years from now. Awesome. Thanks for having me on the show. I had a blast. You got it. This is a, a world champion and Olympian sport climber, Sean McColl. You can check out Sean McColl, M-C-C-O-L-L, SeanMcColl.com, or check him out at McColl Sean on Instagram. I should have asked him how he felt about the jean jacket. Why didn't I ask him how he felt about the jean jacket? <laughs> Friends, as the rest of your life is in some ways kind of easing back offline you know what i mean everything's been online i mean having coffee with your pals or mixing martinis over zoom and now maybe getting together over a backyard campfire your education experience doesn't have to be the same way athabasca university is canada's online university and they've been offering online on-demand learning for years they're the best in the country at what they do. You can do your schooling from anywhere at AthabascaU.ca when the kids are at soccer practice. Maybe you're on the road for work, just chilling in the hotel. It's way easier to incorporate schooling into your life when you don't have to work around a particular time and place. You don't have to find parking. You don't have to trudge in through the snow. Why do I keep talking about snow? AU fits your schedule, your life. You can check them out at AthabascaU.ca, or of course, as you know, you can just link to their website under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Our friends at Eden Landscaping want to remind you that, you know, you pretty soon, again, we're going to be getting to the conceptual phase of what our yard's going to look like next year. If you're like our family, Carrie starts to dream about new things she could integrate into the perennial garden or, or maybe a new hedge wall makes me nervous which is why i'm thrilled to be partnered with eden landscaping because they could take the ideas turn them into reality and they don't stop until you're satisfied you can check out some of the work they've done we'll call it their online cv at landscapeedmonton.ca that's eden landscaping a proud partner of real talk again under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com and with our thanks to sean mccall for joining us i just wanted to quickly remind you that if you go to our website again ryanjesperson.com right at the top you have our question of the week presented by our friends at y station our official research and strategy partners we ask you about the olympic games in retrospect touch on some of the more controversial talking points or storylines and get a general feel of where you're at with one of the biggest spectacles on planet earth we'll be reviewing those results a week from next monday when we're back on the air live again real talk as we say going off air for a week starting right after this show to give the team a chance to recharge well, it's expected that Canadians will be headed to the polls this fall. I mean, we've been talking about it, haven't we? Like it's a foregone conclusion. You can expect a federal election on September 20th. We thought it was a great time to check in with three people who I know uh, will have strong opinions. First of all, on whether or not this is even a good idea. David Mosscrop is a contributing columnist out of the Washington Post. He's author of Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Political Decisions, How We Can Make Better Ones. He may be the purveyor owner and model of the most magnificent beard in the entire country Moscow, that's that, that thing is unbelievable is this this is this like a pet i don't want to degrade it is it a pandemic experiment what's going on here with you it's so much more than that 
It's a national experience. It's a transcendent moment for all of us. It's a, a huge leap for humankind. Uh, I started growing it at the end of the 2019 election because I was so sick and tired of getting myself put together for TV and podcasts and radio and whatever. And so I decided I was just going to let it go. And I would have caved. But then the pandemic hit and I just leaned into it. And here we are. And here we are. It, it's amazing. Uh, we should do kind of like the before and after photos, because I, I mean, I just I, I prefer this version of you, to be quite honest, David, although you're debonair and handsome uh, as ever when you're cleanly shaven as well. We should probably introduce our other two panelists. Uh, Emma May is a good friend of this show. Uh, how do, what do I say, Emma? Lawyer, realtor, entrepreneur, former political staffer, <laughs> political insider. People love what you're doing at SophieGrace.ca. Of course, people know you as well from your time in the premier's office office with with Jim Prentice. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for making time for us. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's good to have you. Jarrett Campbell is, I won't say rounding out our panel because, I mean, maybe he'll surge right to the fore. Maybe he'll lead the pace. I don't know what's going to happen here. Jarrett's a political consultant, a a career in accounting and and finance and development. And and the thing about Jarrett, which is a little bit annoying, as a matter of fact, real talkers, when we interview him, he's he's never really going to tell us the extent of his political insider status that's all part of it jc right it's kind of like fight club in a way yeah. what was the what was the term from fight club you I think the first rule of Fight Club is you don't don't talk about Fight Club. So so I know that you're you're working on campaigns right now, I'm sure. And and I'm sure you're probably not going to tell us which ones, but we'll see. I'll I'll keep on digging. Mosscrab, let's start with you. Is is this even a smart move? I mean, people are seeing this, you know, in the context of a fourth wave right now. You've got the opposition parties, sure, posturing, but saying this is not the time to be taking Canadians to the polls. How risky is this for the prime minister? I would say medium to low. I mean, the fact is, if you look at the polls, the liberals are kind of hovering at 36%, give or take an extra point. The opposition is sort of, at least conservative opposition, in the high 20s. They're certainly not cracking 30. They might be as high as 29. <clears throat> I mean, the liberals go for it. They're good campaigners. And what, what do they end up with? Probably worst case scenario is they end up with an, another minority government. They get to extend their their time in government. They beat a fourth wave or a fifth wave or the pandemic uncertainty that that lies ahead of us in the fall, the winter. But they've also got a pretty good shot at at the brass ring at at 38, 39 percent, 40 percent that will get them a majority. So I suspect it's a calculated risk and it'll probably pay off for them, especially given that, you know, the 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 other viable government in theory is the Tories. Their path to victory is much more narrow than the liberals for all kinds of reasons. So if you're the government, why not? I don't think we need the election, but I think as a calculated risk for a political party, it's probably a pretty good one. Emma, can, can a prime minister justify this to Canadians or, or does that even really matter? I mean, once we start getting into platforms and once we start getting into the debates, is anybody even going to be talking about the fact that there's an election in the first place, do you think? No, I don't think that's actually, I'm not sure that that's a huge thing that's registering on Canadians' minds right now. I think they see it for what it is, that we've just been through this incredible, crazy time, and uh, it is a minority government. Minority governments come to an end. They come to an end sooner than uh, the majority governments, and so, you know, in terms of how this would play out, it's not unreasonable that he would go for this. Uh, We've seen other elections through pandemics. We saw BC did it, so... You know, I, I I agree with David. I think this is a calculated risk that uh, that is, you know, presents really well for him. I don't think he's uh, I don't think 
this is going to go, I think this is going to go relatively well for him. That said, I mean, you never know. There could be, you know, something that could top blackface, although that didn't seem to matter last time either. So, uh, yeah, campaigns do matter, but I really don't see how this is going to, how this really could, how anybody could actually top top him right now. Jarrett, you think you think did the did the liberals miss a window? That seems to be a popular working theory. I've seen some people suggest that he should have called the election about six weeks ago. Where are you at with it? Um, well, six weeks ago would have put us into you know a lot of the country was still dealing with COVID uh, lockdowns and protocols and you know getting through those. I don't think that would have been a good time. I think they actually probably picked the the right window. Um, you know, whether or not we have a fourth wave or what that looks like with for sort of a heavily vaccinated population. But, um, you know, we're going into the fall, the fall, you know, everyone's going back to school. It's sort of a time of change. And I think that, you, you know, it's fresh in everybody's mind that ultimately everyone's vaccinated. That's the big thing. Everyone's getting back to life. And it's a big, it's a nice little reminder, right? And you get on the campaign trail and say like, hey, at the end of the day, we got those vaccines into Canada. You know, there was a lot of uncertainty. The, the the conservatives really played their cards earlier this spring by by chastising um, the the response. It was it really fell flat. And let's like not forget that you wait another six months. Life has been back to normal for eight months. Things you know, people move on. Maybe that would. I think I really do think that they probably picked the best time they could. I mean, without knowing, of course. Uh, and you know, Emma sort of referred to it the blackface. You you always feel with this government that you never know what kind of scandal they're just going to like have pop up on them. The fact that nothing's come up, they've got this election, cross their fingers that, you know, we don't have the next We Charity or the next um, SNC or the next Blackface or the next whatever comes up. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm but, but, like David said, the worst case scenario. minority. But, but, but you're like SNC and Blackface and, and the AgaCon trip and like you can like list and list and list. And the one common theme through all of it, David, is that Justin Trudeau is still the prime minister. And so if you're Aaron O'Toole, I guess in that war room, you're sitting there and thinking, what's the Jenga block? I mean, how is this thing going to topple? How are we going to bring this government down? If you're advising Mr. O'Toole, where do you start? I keep <clears throat> getting this question. And my answer is always, if I'm advising Aaron O'Toole, either one of us or both of us have made big mistakes. <laughs> Just huge, huge mistakes. And you'd have a real serious long think about how we ended up where we are. But let's pretend that life has gone extraordinarily poorly for each of us and I'm advising him. Uh, and I would say, look, you've got two things you've got to do. The first is control your party. Try to do what Stephen Harper did. I'm going to give Stephen Harper credit. I'm going to be extraordinarily gracious and give Stephen Harper, I think, credit that he deserves. He was able to corral that party in a way that few leaders have in the past. It's an extraordinarily difficult, fractious bunch to control. And Stephen Harper did it really well until he didn't. And then we saw what happened in 2015 when he stopped being able to do that. But for a long time, he did. In part by saying abortion is off limits. Same-sex marriage is off limits. We're done with this. Aaron O'Toole needs to channel his inner Stephen Harper. Step one. And step two is wait. Honestly, liberals defeat themselves. Uh, you know, the, the received wisdom in this country is that we vote out governments. We don't vote them in. And I think that's broadly true. And so if Aaron O'Toole can control his party and wait, I think he'll get his shot. But then, of course, the, the corollary to that is the party can't go turn around and ditch its leader every time they lose an election. It's not going to serve them well. And, and I think they got rid of Andrew Scheer after he won more votes than Trudeau and did better than, than they had before. So if they can control those three things, ultimately, I think they've got a shot at government in the next four to eight years. Emma, you're in a you're coming to us from Calgary right now. Is that correct? 
Yeah. You're you're in. I mean, you're in. Uh, I, I'm just going to I'm going to stereotype here. And I know a lot of people will roll their eyes at me. But there you are in the conservative hotbed. When you when you talk about Calgary, Alberta, Calgary's very proudly been the home of Preston Manning and of Stephen Harper and and all these. I mean, could get we could get into the back rooms and talk about Tom Flanagan and Rod Love and you, you know, uh, I mean, what's what's the sense that you're getting? I know that I've put out these and, and we caveat them as unscientific and unofficial Twitter polls, but just. For interest's sake, I tested the waters a couple of weeks ago and, and asked Canadian conservatives who they'd most like to lead them into the next federal election. And quite frankly, and again, unscientific, unofficial, but it didn't look good for Aaron O'Toole. A lot of people want Stephen Harper back. Seems like a lot of people want Pierre Poyev back. People are talking about all kinds of leadership options. What's the sense you're getting from conservatives? Is there buy-in on Aaron O'Toole? Well, there's going to have to be because he's their guy and uh, he's who he's who's leading. So they better kind of get behind him if that's who they want to be uh, prime minister. If they're conservative, then he's going to be their shot. But you saw what uh, happened, Emma, right? You saw what happened when he started talking about a conservative climate plan. I mean, his own, people just piled on him. Well, this is the problem with the conservative party right now is it is totally fractious. And so we've got people who literally are leaving the conservative party because they are not uh, conservative enough. And you've got like Maxine Bernier out there talking about, you know, anti-vax BS and the whole rest of it. And then you've got other people who, you know, sort of the Michael Chong, more progressive conservative wing of people who are like, can we please come up with something that actually the rest of Canada can get on board with? Um, you know, and so it feels to me like the, you know, Alberta is always, Alberta is a strong conservative uh, base, like, end of story. There will, there, will there be breakthroughs here? There might be. There might very well be. They've actually got some pretty good candidates, Liberal Party, that they've recruited. And and uh, and I think, I was saying yesterday, I think the fact that the, the federal party really came through for Canadians during this pandemic and so many businesses access that money and none of them have to pay it back yet. Um, I, think, I think that's sort of still fresh in people's minds. So, you know, on that side of things, there could be a bit of a breakthrough. But it, Alberta is conservative. They will continue to to support the conservative party. And here you've got Aaron O'Toole coming out with his, you know, like cowboy hat, oil and gas, raw, raw, raw platform. Um, and I'm kind of like, dude, why are you doing this? Like Alberta's going to fucking vote for you no matter what. Like it doesn't seem to matter what you do. Like, do you want to lose with the rest of the country? Is that what you're actually trying to do is set yourself up so that you're unelectable throughout like most of the rest of this country? Or are you just going to continue to pander to a province that gives you like, you know, 80% wins on your seats? And, and in Alberta, apparently that's what we like to do is we just keep electing people who have no chance of you know actually governing so jc where does this start i mean is this election won and lost in quebec i mean are you going to make inroads in downtown toronto or the west coast i mean if you're aaron o'toole and the conservatives like like you know the panels pointed out andrew Scheer, i think probably would tell you it was a disappointing result in the fall of 2019 but at the same time there were some encouraging signs right yeah i mean i think what andrew Scheer showed us was that running up the score in Western Canada in a first past the post system doesn't get you a government. And so, yeah. you know, and I, and I've noticed the same thing that Emma has, I'm, I'm going like, what is, what's going on with their internal polling? Is it so bad that Aaron O'Toole feels that he needs to show up into Alberta and tell us exactly what Albertans love to hear is, Oh my God, you know, we're not being treated fairly and things are so, so rough. Like w- w- what's the swing here? Like in a best case scenario, 
if you think about the the NDP picking up uh, Edmonton Strathcona, if you think about the federal Liberals picking up like what uh, Skyview and uh, maybe yeah. Centre in Calgary, Centre. Like I mean, we're talking maybe maybe five seats in play, and mm-hmm. and you go into south southern like southwestern Ontario, right? And that's really where this will be won or lost, right? This will be this will be the you know there's this sort of the how the Liberals do against, um, you know, in Quebec and then how the Conservatives do in Ontario are sort of the deciding factor between do we see a minority government, do we see a majority government? Um, you know, they need to be out there in southwestern Ontario telling them that, you know, they're there to listen to them and that they're there to uh, be their government. You don't need to do that in Alberta. And if you're and if you're doing it in Alberta, if your internal polls are so sh- showing you that you need to go in there and shore up support in Alberta, you've got a much bigger problem than, uh, you know, trying to unseat this government. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see how conservative premiers popularity or or disapproval, quite frankly, factors into federal success. I mean, David, I guess you kind of write about this a little bit. I mean, when, when you talk about dumb political decisions in your book, too dumb for democracy, you talk about Brexit and you talk about Donald Trump, but you also talk about Ontario's premier. Uh, is is Doug Ford is is potentially Jason Kenney is is even Brian Pallister on his way out? Bad news for Aaron O'Toole. Well, you'll recall in 2019, Doug Ford kept a low profile. <laughs> I mean, he he was not an asset to the party, and this happens. You know, the the 1980 Liberal uh, campaign federally was was dubbed Air Trudeau because they kept Pierre Trudeau in the air all the time because nobody wanted to see him. Right? I mean, you want to uh, hide your liabilities and you want to highlight your assets. There's no way that Jason Kenney and certainly Doug Ford and Pallister are assets to the to the Federal Conservative Party right now. I mean, you would think that Jason Kenney might be an asset in Alberta, but even that's questionable right now. So I suspect that the party's at the least going to say, you know, don't no need to give us a call. No need to join us on the hustings. We're we're good. And that's probably wise, Uh, because here's the thing. The fact is, if you look at the political science data, the fact we what we learn is that people are pretty bad at figuring out what order of government does what in this country. And they're pretty bad at deciding who they want to reward and blame for things. They sort of just go and look at whoever's in front of them and you know, they heap the, the, play, the blame or the reward based on proximity and, and circumstance, not on, on a sort of accounting of who's done what and how they ought to be rewarded. And of course they do. Who has got time to go through all of that and figure it out? It's, it's complicated, right? And so I suspect that the, the party strategy is going to be try to mute these folks so that they don't become uh, a liability. And, and that's just how federations and political brains work. It's, it's who we are. We're not, as I say in the book, we haven't evolved to be political animals in this sort of sense of, of institutionalized partisan politics. That's not who we are, right? It's not what we do. It, it's no, it, making a political decision is difficult. You don't, you're not born being able to make a good political decision, rational, coherent, any more than you're born being able to hit a fastball. It's something you you try to you, you learn to do. You develop a skill set, and we don't really develop that skill set. So it becomes a strategy or, or a challenge for the parties to work around that. And right now, Aaron O'Toole has got a couple of liabilities that he's got to work around. 
Emma, do you think that I, mean, I know that George Chahal has been a big and you'll have more insight into that than I will, but a big boon, I think, for the liberals federally, uh, for those that are listening across the country, unfamiliar with him, an elected uh, city councilor in Calgary. There's uh, Ben Henderson, who's been a relatively popular, uh, although unspectacular. Hey, JC, you'd probably agree with me there. Ben Henderson's not exactly prominent kind of in the spotlight kind of a guy, but he's like a steady Eddie type city councilor, gets reelected every time he runs. He's running again in, in, in that riding that Amarjeet Sohi was was unable to hold on to for the liberals Tim Upple of course there and then Randy Boissonneau former special advisor to the PM is looking for his seat back in Edmonton Center James Cumming pretty popular relatively speaking uh, conservative MP there so I mean there are some battlegrounds in Alberta that'll be interesting I mean you think the liberals can take some seats I mean they, they got shut out in the fall of 2019 I do think there's a possibility there I think it, as you go into like let's also be Clear, as you go into an election where it seems like it's the polling advantage for the Liberal Party is so, um, well, it's great, right? I, I always wonder how many of these voters sort of strategically vote and say, you know what, maybe we should have somebody in cabinet in there to represent us. And uh, seeing as the rest of the city is probably going to go blue, might be nice to have like one, you know, one red guy there who can actually get appointed to cabinet and have our voice there. So we'll see what we, you know, we'll see, we'll see if that sort of factors into things. But again, I do think that, you know, Canadians by and large were supported by the federal government, not by provincial programs. The checks that came through to Canadians during the pandemic all came through from the federal government. The businesses that were supported were supported by the federal programs. Uh, the individuals who were supported were supported by the federal programs. And there really wasn't a lot on the provincial side of things. And quite frankly, you know, I don't think we ever heard a viable plan from the conservatives as to what it was that they were going to do. There was a lot of criticism. And then there was this whole thing around like, oh, we're not going to give you the vaccinations. And so it was kind of like, well, what were you going to do? What was your plan through this? Because we never actually saw something that was that that said, you know, somehow you were going to come up with vaccinate vaccines way faster or somehow you were going to, you know, support people. So I do think that the goodwill there for the Liberal Party has been has been established, um, whether that can transcend tradition and sort of all of the the grousing and grumping that goes on about, you know, anti-oil and gas uh, behavior. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's it's a weird one. Uh, JC, I know I'm sure you'll have insight on this. Like, you know, you if, if you're the conservatives and I'm going to be kind of lazy and take some swipes here and then, JC, I'll let you clean up my mess. But it's hard to be a political party that doesn't support or that shuts down public laboratories and then bitches that we're not developing our own vaccines. It's tough to be a party that says, you know, and again, I, I hesitate to invoke Stephen Harper's comments because he's not the leader of the conservatives and it's somewhat unfair to Aaron O'Toole, to be quite frank, but to have the former PM say that he thinks that pandemic spending has been overkill and then to have a lot of business owners saying, like, thank God we had it or our doors would be shuttered for good right now. You kind of wonder, it feels like a tacky question, but was the pandemic maybe good for the Trudeau brand on the prairies? Yeah, I mean, I think if if you step back and, you know, you're looking at it away from parties and you just say, you know, what, you know, big government versus limited government and this sort of, you know, ongoing sort of debate, you know, a, a global pandemic that rocks the economy in a way that this is really an argument for bigger government. It sort of shows you that if you, you know, you've got a big government, you can really uh, get yourself through something like that. Right. And in sort of a time of peace and prosperity, you may say, well, 
you know, this is a this is an example of where limited government would be would be better examples. So, uh, you know, if you're looking at it from just those simple dividing lines, right, and you've got a conservative government that, yeah, their their pitch is largely you know more limited government. You know, we would reduce the deficit, we would spend less, we would you know potentially lower taxes. Um, yeah, it's not not a, a giant global pandemic is not great for that sort of general thesis. Um, and so, yeah, I think that coming out of the pandemic, I mean who's in government and who's writing those checks. We have seen any of the elections that have happened since this happened, uh, delivered a majority for the party that called them. Right. And I think it's people like the government and if you stand up there and say, Hey, isn't government good. It's a pretty good time for that message. We're talking to uh, that's Jarrett Campbell, Emma May and David Moskrop, our guests back in just a moment. I want to ask you three about whether or not you believe some of the polling we're seeing in particular about the federal NDP. I want to find out what the hell's going on with the Green Party too. that in just a second. Let us remind you right now that if you're looking to get into the the phone that is being celebrated, they're talking about it around the world. Even when I look at it, I get these jealous kind of feelings. I feel like it's time to upgrade my own iPhone to the 12 Pro Max. They have them in stock at Westworld Computers, along with the iMacs and the iPads and the MacBooks and everything else you need. The Apple Watches, the cases, the accessories and the expertise that comes with being an independent family owned Apple dealer that's been in business for 40 years. You don't stay in business for 40 years as an independent unless you build up a base of satisfied return customers. And that's Daryl and his team's top priority. You can visit them, go shopping right now online, or hey, book a service appointment at westworld.ca. We also want to remind you coming up in Edmonton, August 20th through 22nd, that's next weekend, This is the triathlon event of the year across Canada, Canada's triathlon city, Edmonton, proud to host the World Triathlon Championship Finals. So many opportunities and different ways to get involved as a fan, a spectator, as a volunteer, even as a competitor. They've got the Urban Cycling Fondo going on the Sunday. Of course, all the elite races on the Saturday. Convenient maps, ways to register, even book in advance your distanced seating. They want everybody to have a wonderful experience down there. Bring the whole family to the World Triathlon Championship Finals at edmonton.triathlon.org. Plus, a big shout out to our team, our good friends at Kubi Energy. You can find them online at kubienergy.ca. Jake wanted me to remind you that their team is great at staying on top of the things you'd expect, like a knowledge and awareness and access to funding, available subsidies, refunds, your sustainable energy future, your home, net zero, free clean energy. Once you've got those installation costs covered, could be here sooner than you think, including a neat agricultural subsidy. If you're a producer in the province of Alberta, you can get in touch with them at kubienergy.ca. Of course, you'll find all of our sponsors under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. We're hanging out with David Moskrop, MMA, and Jarrett Campbell. Check this out. Polling from Abacus Data just a short time ago shows that voter intention. Now, this is before the election's even called. Let's not get carried away. Let's take this all with a grain of salt. Shows that the governing liberals are enjoying 22% support in the province of Alberta. The conservatives, as you might expect, with the most support, but not by much, 38%. It's because the federal NDP, under the leadership of Jagmeet Singh, enjoying 29% of support among dedicated voters. 
I'm curious to know how Jarrett Campbell will perceive this one. I saw that I saw that slight little curl of the lip there. I'm going to be honest. I'll go on the record first to be fair to everybody. I don't buy it for a single second. I think that something's weird going on with the polling. I don't know what this is, but I cannot see and no disrespect. Heather McPherson's done a nice job as the lone NDP member of parliament in Edmonton, Strathcona, puts up a hell of a fight. She does a lot of prominent work, not meaning an insult to anybody. I just can't see it. Can you, JC? Uh, no, not, not that level of support. And I think to sort of David's point, people often don't understand levels of government and who does what. And, uh, if you phone somebody in Edmonton, you know, cause you gotta remember Edmonton loves to vote conservative federally and NDP provincially. So somebody can explain that to me at some point. Um, Good luck. anyway, so yeah, I would, I would guess that that's not the case. I would, I, but I would say they probably are doing better. I think Jagmeet Singh has done a good job. Um, and I think that we're liable to see a scenario where, if the Liberals don't win seats in, Al- in Alberta in a few of those ridings, it's because the NDP uh, kind of ended up splitting the vote with them, like Edmonton Centre. That is a very likely possibility. Um, and so he's done a good job. And, and you know, part of what might be happening or what I think might be happening, right, is this 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 inevitability of a Liberal victory gives people that may otherwise vote for the liberals, the freedom to vote for the, for the NDP. Right. So, you know, the, the oldest trick in the book, the federal liberals stand up there and they say, Hey, you may not like us. You may prefer the NDP, but it's us or the conservatives and they're evil and they're bad. They're going to do all these bad things. And if you're inevitably going to win, people may go, Hey, you know what? They're going to win anyways. Let's see what's, let's see what uh, my vote can do elsewhere. Emma, what do you think? I think, it comes down to this level of government thing. And I actually really think that this is a Rachel Notley um, lead off and uh, she's, she's incredibly popular right now. She's leading all the fundraising. Um, I think she, as much as we know that technically the NDP parties are related um, and that they are actually sort of one in the same across federal and provincial. I don't think people understand that to be the case, but anyway, I think I think Rachel's their best asset right now. I think she's a better asset to them than, than probably Jagmeet is himself. Isn't it interesting that if we were having this conversation a year ago or maybe again in a year as, uh, you know, a, a provincial election looms in 2023 that you might be talking about uh, Jagmeet Singh as a liability to Rachel Notley, right? If you look at conservative strategy uh, for an extended period of time, and Emma, I want to come right back to you on this. And then David, um, a big part of conservative strategy provincially has been to tie the provincial NDP to the federal NDP. Of course, everybody knows the structure of membership means that they are essentially one in the same, but, but it's been a key focal point for the, for the conservatives, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but when people think of Rachel Notley, she was actually quite a pragmatic leader, and she's very much a prairie NDP uh, leader. She's not sort of this urban, uh, the, the kind of, you know, NDP that you come out of like urban center Toronto's, right? Like Rachel's very focused, or Notley's very focused on job creation. She's very focused on um, sort of what is the, accepting what the, you know, what are the leading industries in Alberta and how do we support them? And then how do we, you know, move forward with sort of initiatives that are going to continue to reinforce that and actually help the worker base here. So uh, it's a different, she definitely has a different brand. I think her brand will play very well for Jagmeet here. 
um, if he chooses to use her. But yes, the, you are absolutely right. The flip side of that is is that it gets used against him on a, on a provincial level. David, the federal party, the federal NDP, I mean, it just went through the ringer really through the last election. The big story coming out of the election was that they were remortgaging or refinancing their property to make sure that the party didn't go bankrupt. How would you assess the job that Mr. Singh's done. I'll, I'll let Real Talkers know, by the way, if you want to see our conversation with Chuck Mead, it was a pretty good one. Pretty candid guy. I took questions. I appreciated the spirit of the interview. You can find it in our podcast archives. You can find it on YouTube. David, how would you assess the job he's done? And do you think that the NDP might fare better nationally uh, in this next election? Well, I'm a little bit biased because I'm a filthy leftist, like proper leftist, not proper not ndp leftist like a socialist leftist and so i i most people would criticize jugging from the from the center or from the right i credit criticize him from the left so i'm coming Let's from hear a slightly it. different perspective but i mean here's the thing the party was in some sense a victim of its own success because it did it did extraordinarily well in 2015 it did very well in 2019 compared to a lot of its historical performances but people were talking about the sort of death of the ndp uh, because it had done well in, in the previous two elections, right? So there was a sort of regression to the mean, I think, in, in 2019. And, and, and Jagmeet bore a lot of the frustration that they were, were regressing. But all in all, I think they did fairly well in the sense that they got their finances in order. They're slowly putting the party back together. But uh, I think they struggle with figuring out where they fit in the Canadian politics firmament. And when they tried to become, under Jack Layton and later Thomas Mulcair, a kind of, of kinder, gentler liberal party, they got closer in proximity to power, but farther away from the point of the party, which is to be a proper left party, not just sort of washed, washed down liberals. And, and I think that's the left critique, is that you should return to a proper left base and, and a, a proper left socialist base. Because I think the strategy for the NDP, if, if they're going to want to become relevant and not just a policy farm for the liberals, which they've been for three or four decades now, uh, they've got to bring new voters to the polls and change minds of, of younger generations rather than trying to chase liberal flip votes and the occasional uh, Tory vote. And so I think I would like to see Doug Meet say, OK, well, we're going to go for, in a sense, what Justin Trudeau did, but the sort of further left version of that from 2015, which is to mobilize new voters based on a bold platform. And if there was ever going to be an election to do it, it would be now because we're talking pandemic recovery. We're talking indigenous reconciliation and justice. We're talking climate change. We watched the IPCC report come out mm -hmm. the other day, code red for humanity, according to the UN Secretary General. We're talking pharmacare. We're talking childcare. We're talking anti-black racism, disability rights. I mean, all of these things, housing, these issues where the NDP should be eating the liberals lunch but they often look like a bit of a washed out version of them. So uh, I suspect their future is going to be in, in trying to seize that, uh, seize new voter groups and mobilize them rather than, than trying to court liberals. But I honestly, I, I'm not convinced that they've, they've got the courage to push for it. As, as, as much as I admire a lot of what Jugman's done, I think they're still fundamentally a small L liberal party in a lot of ways. And they've, they've marginalized that left flank a little bit in the party. And I think they're sort of stuck in perpetual third party status because of that. Jared, of course, David's not wrong about any of that. I mean, if ever there's been a time where Canadians are open to or quite frankly, already having discussions or forming their own opinions on things like a universal basic income, I don't see a ton of chatter around a national pharmacare plan, but I know that that could quickly become relevant. I mean, this truth and reconciliation, I mean, more than 5000 children's bodies have been recovered. 
uh, and counting. I hate to say it that way uh, on the sites of former residential schools. I mean, there's 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 a lot of stuff going on, as David has laid out anti-black racism, the George Floyd. I mean, the sentence of Derek Chauvin certainly resonated. That was heard around the world, much like the OJ verdict was. I mean, that's what that reminded me of. People are talking about this issues of social justice warriors is I don't see it being used as a slur much anymore, because if you're not concerned about social justice right now, what the hell are you concerned about? But that doesn't mean that that's going to drive people's votes. Right. Can we be can we be cold and calculated for a second? A lot of people are going to say, yeah, these are real issues and I really do care about this, but I'm concerned about Canada's economic recovery and I'm going to vote for the party that I think will get us out of this hole. Jared, so what's more compelling when it comes to the campaign trail? Yeah, no, I think that I think that you've you've brought up a good point, right? So there's there is, you know, as David mentioned, these really important issues, and there is a certain type of voter with whom that that's salient enough that they would vote. But what you likely find is the median voter, right? The median Southwest uh, Ontario suburban Toronto voter is probably somewhat economically conservative. They're probably not super engaged in these issues. They maybe appreciate them, but like they're just there. They, they're taking care of their family. They want a job. You know, the the idea, you know, you saw this and, and you sometimes have to take lessons from from America because they do so much more sort of polling and, and data and research. But like defund the police comes out and a year later, like no, nobody really defunded the police. Right. It turns out the police were actually quite popular amongst a lot of groups and a lot of folks who. Uh, you know, the defund police movement came out and said, well, we're, we're speaking on behalf of these groups. Turns out they actually, you know, middle-aged, uh, you know, people in certain, in these communities that were purported to be uh, represented actually want the police in their neighborhoods. And actually maybe police reform might be popular, but the idea of defunding it is not. And I think that's, that's going to be the fundamental problem for the NDP, right? Sure. Like there, there are going to be some people that are like, hey, great, universal basic income. Nobody's ever really explained how it would maybe work and the financials and BC did a big study. But these are not broadly popular ideas. And so you're sort of stuck saying, you know, what, 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 like, what is the NDP, right? Are they a leftist party, right? Do they take uh, a really strong stance on this and say, hey, listen, we're, we're here to put a stake in the ground. We're not going to win, but we'll get third place. and We'll put these ideas out there. And, and, you know, historically they have been able to put ideas out there that the liberals eventually adopt. Right. And, you know, the childcare is one that's coming, coming to the forefront right now. Um, or do we try to be liberal light so that at some point the, the liberal voter goes, ah, they're not that far away from what I'm like, let's vote for them kind of thing. And maybe they can actually win. I don't know. It's not, it's not an easy question. Um, and I don't envy the strategists who have to make that choice. Emma, how much does a, $10 a day childcare plan and a federal commitment and deals in place already in several provinces factor into the reelectability or maybe a majority status for this government. I think it's a big one. Um, you know, and uh, to come back to sort of the social justice conversation and also what voters are looking for, I'm really struggling with this idea right now that I think we've been through this, this pandemic has actually made us less of a collective and more of really selfish individual assholes. Um, and I think we've all been kind of living in our own little bubbles and those bubbles have been almost like we've, our worlds have shrunk to some degree, right? Over the past two years. And I think we're really looking out for as much as these social justice movements happen through the course of the pandemic. And there was a lot of, you know, um, protest and 
and noise about it. I think as this thing's dragged on, people's um, people are exhausted. I think, and people are just trying to do their best to get by. And people are looking at their own sort of business, their own family structure, uh, what it is that they have to deal with every day. So a program like this childcare program is something that speaks very much to what is happening in people's lives right now. The number of women who have left the workforce, the number of women and families who, well, this is not just a woman problem, but the number of families who are really, you know, have, have just struggled so much through, you know, homeschooling and shutdowns and having to work from home and your kids screaming in the background. And, you know, like just the grind of all of that has taken a toll. So this is a, I mean, let's, let's, yeah, do not discount this program for exactly what it is, which is it is a gift to many families and people want it. Um, And whether or not they even will be around or their kids will be old enough to benefit from it, um, you know, is something that remains to be seen. But this is something that speaks directly to sort of that selfish inclination that people have. And I don't think we should discount those inclinations in this right now. Hmm. David, I, I hesitate to use the word kingmaker, but, you know, if, if you take a look at the, the role that the Greens can play provincially in B.C. or, or in some circumstances, even the role that the, that the NDP could play federally with regarding, you know, regarding uh, liberal aspirations or bills are trying to get passed, whatever. Are you surprised at the, the level to which uh, Mr. Singh and his party did or did not, you know, maximize that position? Do you think they made enough of it, of, of, of the position that the liberals were in and, and maybe some form of reliance? I'm a big supporter of minority governments and minority parliaments. So I'm, I'm a, a bit inclined to cut them some slack on this because I think these things work both in terms of keeping the government to account better because there are better mechanisms, more efficient mechanisms for holding them to account in a minority parliament. And of course, improving legislation, uh, you know, having a real shot at amending legislation, even defeating legislation, introducing legislation that will, will would otherwise be weaker because a majority government can more or less do whatever it wants if it really wants to do something, although it's not om, uh, omnipotent, it can get away with a lot of stuff. The NDP hammered on a couple of points more. So, you know, you know we, we improved CERB was, is the core NDP talking point. We made the pandemic supports that the federal government offered better. You know, the, the federal government wanted to do EI-based pandemic supports. We pushed them on a number of things and did better. And I think that's true. And I think it's a good example of how minority parliament produces better outcomes. It was true in, in 2008 when the NDP and to some extent the Liberals pushed Stephen Harper on uh, on stimulus spending in the wake of the global financial crisis, right? I mean, we have examples of these things working. That said, I suspect to sort of echo a point that, that I think Emma raised earlier, when voters look around and say, okay, who, you know, who was check daddy? It's the federal government. It's not going to be the NDP. They're not going to think uh, that it was just uh, that it was Jagmeet Singh and the, and the New Democrats. It was the federal government and Justin Trudeau. So I think it's hard to make that case. It, it, so minority parliaments produce better governance, but to the extent that it produces better outcomes, it's probably the government that gets rewarded for that. Uh, to the extent that people reward the government and not the opposition. So it is a bit of a catch-22 for the opposition. Nonetheless, it produces better policy for people, which is what you want, which is ultimately the goal of political life, political service, right? I mean, otherwise, what's the point? If it's just partisan bickering and, and, and power relations, then go play a game of risk. Go play a game of Civ 6. I'm, I'm 
I'm, I'm 2,800 hours in. I'd love to play with you. I got all the time in the world. But if it's about delivering better legislation, then, then that's what you got to do. So I think it puts them in a tough position, uh, the, the new Democrats. As, of, as for the Greens, I don't, you'd be better off with a random number generator at this point. I don't even know what you do with that. It is just, I will say this though, that they do have a decision about what they want to do. I think they need to get out of the way and let their leader lead for a while. Yeah. Right. I mean, let, let Paul do her thing. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if you don't even test, then you don't know. And and I think she's been the victim of a lot of, of, of rough politics, a lot of anti-black politics, a lot of anti-woman politics. Uh, it's time for them to just let her lead and see what happens. And then they can figure it out because this isn't going to be their election. I think I think they're, it's they're uh, currently poised. I, I'm uh, I'm already going to say I hate what I'm about to do, but I'm still going to do it uh, because <laughs> because I'd like to hear the three of you respond. Um, I hate I loathe. I, I think it's actually quite disrespectful for someone to do what I'm about to do, which is to to characterize an entire party and to describe like Canada's concern. If you vote for or support the conservative party, here's who you are. Or if you vote for the liberals, here's who you are. It rarely applies. There are millions of exceptions, obviously. But the thing with the Greens, and I said this to Ms. Paul when she talked to us, we've spoken to all the federal leaders, uh, save Monsieur Blanchette, who will join us. And and Aaron O'Toole's team has said that he's going to talk to us in the next couple of weeks. So we're looking forward to that. But our conversation with Annamie Paul, I found her to be actually quite reasonable and quite likable. And we had a great conversation. I pointed out to her and she reiterated that people that expect this sort of like Peace, love and harmony, man, like kind of the pot smoking Birkenstock wearing tree hugging Green Party supporter would probably be surprised to find out that for as many people that that might describe, there's also a bunch of kind of libertarian. I'm going to use the word on purpose wing nuts that are part of that party as well. And I think that we're seeing that flare up. I just can't imagine, Emma, maybe I'll throw you this hot potato, but but quite frankly, I can't imagine what person in their right mind would vote for the Greens right now with this gong show going on. I mean, the party dismissing the leader's interim chief of staff, the leader has six or seven knives in her back right now. If you're voting for the Greens, what are you even voting for at this point? I mean, I'm not saying they'd be a major player in the election anyway, but but if I would have been a Green Party supporter, I would have been somewhat optimistic after hearing Annamie Paul on Real Talk a few weeks ago. Yeah, I, you know, I, I still come back to this thing. I think the Green Party was a cult of personality for a long time. Uh, Elizabeth May really was the like she was it, man. And she led that thing. And it was really all about her. And I just don't think this transition to somebody new has for whatever reason and whatever the knives in the back are, it hasn't, it hasn't gone over. It's like people didn't want her to go or something or everybody just wanted her to stick around. And that was the way it was going to be. Um, but it's, I think the brand, you know, if you think of it as a brand, I don't know what happened because they've just lost sort of all ability to like she, Elizabeth may had her moments. Sometimes she was, you know, brilliant and eloquent and, and on fire and other times, you know, she was not. And, but, you know, she really was the, you know, she really was the, the brand encompassed in her. Um, And I don't think people really thought of the party as much more than her. So I'm not sure how they actually come, come through this. Obviously there's going to be frustration with people who, you know, see Justin Trudeau is buying TMX and quite frankly, the construction of TMX has happened. And I'm saying this is an Albertan, right? Like I, I drive to BC and that pipe is being laid beside the highway every single day. That project is full steam ahead. And 
you know, pipe is being laid in the ground. So if you are not onto that kind of thing uh, and you have a real concern about climate, maybe the Liberal Party isn't the party that you are going to be supporting if that's a huge issue for you. So where do you go? Do you go over to the NDP? Maybe that's your option. Or are you are you, you know, will you go to the Greens? Probably not under the current leadership. Yeah, it's kind of weird that we don't have more conservative politicians in Western Canada celebrating the progress and construction of TMX. I thought that pipeline expansion was a really good and exciting thing. Isn't that weird? One would one would think that they would be, you know, all like kind of all over it, seeing as Jason Kenney just keeps coming up and like, you know, complaining that that KXL. I think we had a conversation about KXL again the other day. I'm like, are we really bringing this up again? I thought this was dead. Like, this is done. We've wasted one point five billion dollars. It's over. You took a bet on Donald Trump. We have TMX. No one wants to talk about that, though. Hmm. I want to ask the three of you before we thank you for your time. Let you get back to your Fridays. Um, David, you've certainly written more about the Ford government in Ontario, and I want to get to that in just a second. But first, Emma and, and Jarrett on the Alberta government. The rumor is sources say that the Alberta government. Uh, pardon me. I'm getting a live update from the producer of the show right now. Sarah, letting me know that uh, Dr. Dina Hinch, Alberta's chief medical officer of health, has just announced. Is that right? That test, trace and isolate uh, will be in place until September 27th. Let's say at least September 27th. Uh, masking not required. So we're learning some details here on the fly. Uh, Emma, you got a big smile on your face. <laughs> we'll come back to you first, then to you, Jared. But uh, I mean, I, I guess you're probably going to say it's the right move. The public has been demanding the move politically. Is this significant or, or not? Well, they I mean, Jason Kenney hates to walk anything back like this is like his worst bloody nightmare. Like the idea that he has to turn around and say, no, I was wrong and we're going to go in this direction. But the reality is, is that the data on the Delta variant is not settled Um the, their plan that was in place probably would have been an okay plan had Delta not shown up and it was just regular COVID we were dealing with. But parents are going back to school. Uh, what's happening in the U.S. is, you know, not tracking what was happening in the U.K. And now Israel's got another issue. Uh, so everything out there is saying we need to continue to collect data on this. And uh, hopefully some parents feel, especially those under, you know, the kids who are under 12, uh, who really are not eligible for vaccination and who will be going back into classrooms here. Uh, I think I think parents were just losing their minds. And so this is this is going to be huge for them, the ability to continue to trace and to collect data. And I'm very, very grateful that uh, he was able to make this move because I know how painful it was for him. I, a lot of people have talked about it. I mean, I mean, Danielle Smith wrote a column a few days ago that we had talked about with, with regards to her take on all this. And, and she said, as someone who knows Jason Genney, she says he's the type of guy that once he digs his heels in on something, it's pretty rare he's going to move. JC, uh, are, are we reading too much into this? Is there political significance here? How about even with public perception around Alberta's chief medical officer of health? The public, if I can just say and I'm not trying to fan the flames here, but the public appears to have turned on her. People were buying T-shirts with her photo on it a year ago. And Which now I sold <laughs> at SophieGrace.ca. Is that right, Emma? We, yeah, I was selling those. <laughs> OK, so I mean, are people coming money back? went to charity? So don't well, so well, I think know, I think, went to charity. I think I lost money on it. Yeah. So. Or what's your return policy? Have people been trying to leverage your return policy? No, not on that one. There was a no return because all of that money went to charity. Yeah. There was like, yeah. So 
you fed a lot of people across the country. Be happy with it. Do whatever the hell you want with the shirt. That's great. We can get on board with charitable endeavors. JC, is, is it bad uh, for Dr. Dina Hinshaw? Is it bad politically for the premier, maybe the health minister, Tyler Shandro, too? Like bad politically for them to walk it back? I don't I don't think so. No. Um, you know, what we've seen is this government has made some mistakes. They, you know, and they're going to get themselves if they don't listen like they don't read the room, that's where things are going to go bad for them. So I think that politically, the fact that, you know, it's not clear who's making these decisions, right? So Dina Hinshaw comes out with that. She comes out really strong with that. She does a bunch of interviews. She does an op-ed. And, you know, I don't know that I'm going to buy into the conspiracy theory that like, really, it's like, she's just a marionette puppet and Jason Kenny's behind the scenes. You know, she's been very clear. And I think that if, if you, you know, we're buying a T-shirt from her and praising her a year ago, and now you're screaming bloody murder because she's made some decisions that you you don't agree with. You you might be acting a little bit like a lunatic yourself. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that you know, if she made these decisions and then she's decided to change them or extend them, I think that you know, that's her prerogative. Whether or not they make any difference, I don't think so. Like, does, does anybody actually think that? the people that we are really going to be worried about, right. Which are predominantly unvaxxed, un, like not vaccinated are really sitting there being like, well, I'm not going to quarantine unless the government tells me or the government tells me I'll do it. They're not listening to the government, no matter what, uh, you know, the, the people who we would be worried about testing, right. The, the asymptomatic folks who they were no longer going to test. I mean, again, the people that we're worried about are not vaccinated. The people that, you know, are really going to be able to break the chains and, you know, the whole contact tracing hasn't really worked anywhere very well. Because uh, it doesn't take many cases uh, for you to overwhelm a system, because you can't. Turns out you can't just track people down uh, that go to all sorts of different places and not create all these chains. So uh, politically, sure, yeah, they, she listened, she walked it back. Does it make any difference for COVID? Probably not, but it gives people assurance, and people like to see symbols, and they've got one. Before we go to Ontario, I think it gives, David- I think it gives people kids. I think it gives kids 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 assurance though those i think parents were the ones that were like am i sending my kid into a covid vector in school and so at least having the knowledge and the data being able to make those assessments i think uh, you know, whether it will you know matter on the on the actual transmissibility i do think that there is something that parents need the right have the right to know as they go into this into this fall session so i'm excited you know i am excited for that i, I, I w- one quick point there on on dina it's interesting because as much as the I've been traveling a lot between Vancouver and Alberta and realistically speaking, our policies other than this latest thing about like eliminating testing and tracing have actually been kind of bang on. And so listening though, they've been very, very similar throughout the entire, uh, throughout the entire pandemic. And so when you listen to some of the rhetoric that happens around what Dean is doing or whether this Alberta government's doing something and then versus what like J, J, what Horgan's doing it, 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 it sort of ends up being fascinating because the frame is very different about whether or not people like Horgan or they like Kenny, as opposed to what some of the actual policies are. Fair enough. And, and we should all clarify that none of the four of us are immunologists, virologists or public health professionals. Unless Mossgrop's been hiding a, a degree on the wall behind us. But I but I don't think not, so. Not that kind of doctor. No, not that kind of doctor. You wrote. Uh, in the post, I mean, this was a while ago. Uh, I'm curious how evergreen you will assess this piece to be uh, an opinion. WashingtonPost.com. The pandemic has highlighted a fundamental flaw in Canada's democracy. And you kind of get into the politics of public health a little bit. How do you how do you see this conversation from your perspective where you are in the country? 
I mean, our institutions are among the best in the world. They're deeply flawed. They're among the best in the world. We handled the pandemic better than a lot of countries. We had, we learned on the fly. We accepted that speed trumped perfection for a long time, but there was also a, a, just a bunch of dud policies and a lot of incompetence. And it was, I think in part, because you had leaders who were intransigent and you had ways of doing things that became very quickly entrenched and we were loath to walk them back. And we're figuring out how to manage that on the fly. And on, on balance, I think we, we did much better than we might have. But again, it, the whole thing revealed that there were fundamental flaws in our preparedness systems and in, to some degree in, in our federal structure, right? I mean, the, the, we are a federation and that provides us with some real benefits and it provides us with some real liabilities. And the pandemic tested the federation and you saw a lot of intergovernmental squabbling that served nobody well. You didn't see the best practices emerge as quickly as I thought you might and then patterned across the country. Atlantic Canada fared quite well, uh, but you know th that certainly didn't translate across the country. You had you know varying waves and varying degrees of infections and varying degrees of, of, of leaders being concerned about them and various different programs that were implemented at different times. I mean, it showed a certain incoherence that, that uh, we lacked. I'll be curious to see in the years to come the data on whether federations or centralized uh, cent uh, governments did better. Uh, that'll be curious. I'll be curious to see how that plays out because at the moment, at least I, I see some flaws in the Federation that probably made the, the pandemic response worse than it, than it otherwise might have been. And I'll also be curious to see who wears the, the ultimate blame for this because it hasn't been worked out. Francois Legault's numbers are huge in Quebec. I would expect people to blame him for poor performance. John Horgan was rewarded uh, with a majority government, even though he didn't deserve it. Uh, Jason Kenney is being blamed, Pallister as well, uh, much more than other premiers, even though they aren't that much worse than others, right? It goes to show just how incoherent sometimes our responses is. But that's life during, that's life in a federation. David Moskrop is a contributor to The Washington Post. He's the author of Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones. Emma May is an entrepreneur. Check out her amazing clothing line at sophiegrace.ca. And Jarrett Campbell, a good friend of the show, political strategist and insider. Thanks to the three of you for hanging out with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can let us know what you think about what you've heard. I want to get to an email uh, in just a little bit from Cameron, who wrote in the subject line, Frustrated Listener. And I want to get to that in just a second. He talks about pandemic coverage, perspectives, opinions. We always want you to have a voice and know with confidence that the emails you're going to hear here on the show aren't always the ones that support the position of the host. Not always ones that are complimentary of our editorial direction. When we say we want your feedback, we mean it to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Before we get into that, let me remind you that tis the season of, in some cases, shockingly high power bills. The team at parkpower.ca wanted us to remind you that it's a great opportunity to take a look at what you're paying right now and consider protecting yourself from price volatility by switching to a fixed rate offering. You can do it at parkpower.ca, flexible fixed rates for electricity on one and three year terms. You get peace of mind, but you're never locked in. You can switch rates or cancel any time. What have you got to lose? They also, of course, provide natural gas and internet services. You can compare rates on their website. And when you're at parkpower.ca, when you bring your business over there, it takes just a few minutes. Make sure you use the promo code 2021 Dash Real Talk. They're going to refund seventy dollars 
off your first bill. How great is that? Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, this is a great weekend to go see them if you're in our neck of the woods. There are six locations. are at Baseline Road, Y Gardens, Westmount, Newcastle, Nemeo, and Palisades. Every child matters. Every cone counts. And so for the entire month of August, $1 from every cone sold. These six Dairy Queens will go to the Wakutuan Society. This is a an amazing society doing incredibly important work hosting retreats for indigenous women that are survivors of both residential schools and cancer the retreats offer an opportunity for these women to follow a program a structure that's culturally appropriate to strengthen their mental physical spiritual and emotional health the goal to have them return to communities in leadership roles. It's been named the Indigenous Women's Wellness Model. You can learn more online about the Wakutuin Society and a shout out to our friends at Dairy Queen for putting their money where their mouth is. We also wanted to remind you at windspearcenter.com is where you can find your tickets to this summer's edition of Symphony Under the Sky from August 26th through September 5th. It is back at Edmonton's William Horlack Park. Imaginative performances suitable for all ages, classical gems, Hollywood hits, and of course, everybody wants to hear Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. You're going to be seeing an opportunity here to take the family out, and it's not going to break the bank. Tickets start at 20 bucks plus service fees, and get this, children age 17 and under when accompanied by an adult in the grass seating area, which is where everybody loves to sit anyway, they're free. Can you believe it? Check out windspearcenter.com to get in to Symphony Under the Sky, the first performance with the ESO all back together since March of 2020, almost a year and a half. Absolutely unbelievable stuff. Wanted to get to this email. I appreciate this from Cameron. He was he was up late last night, sent this to us about 10 o'clock at night. I love it. That's when I get my work done, too. It's when I'm my brain is going a mile a minute. He says, real talk team. Uh, I've been catching up on episodes and finally tonight was able to to catch this past week. So he says, let me start off by saying I've loved that real talk makes me think about issues and, and news items through real conversation. Unfortunately, says Cameron, I feel like the show's conversations have been somewhat one sided, maybe outside of your talk with Dr. Lenora Saxinger. He says, I follow her on Twitter, by the way, thanks to your show. Since the final, the last announcement of Alberta returning to pre-COVID restrictions, Cameron says, I know that it's been extremely unpopular in media, but I've, I've not found a solid argument that addresses the points why I'm not concerned with the lifting of contact tracing the other latest COVID announcement. Now, keep in mind, in between Cameron sending us this email and me reading it about 12 hours later, there have been changes and Alberta's government is walking back, lifting some of these restrictions. But still, the point holds true and we want Cameron to have a voice here. He says, number one, rising cases and reporting case numbers. I thought the whole point of vaccines was to make case counts irrelevant. And to a certain degree, he's right. And to a certain degree, we've talked about that on the show, that hospitalizations, ICU numbers more relevant in a, in, in a generally vaccinated population than than case counts prior to this he says COVID's here to stay in my opinion and vaccines are very much effective i believe in preventing serious outcomes when it comes to hospitals icus and, and fatalities around COVID. so why are experts continuing to point to case numbers i feel like we've been clear on that on the show cameron says secondly children under 12 data through this pandemic has shown that a negligible number of people under 19 have required hospital beds he says, what do experts have to say where we're going to wind up with youth in this fourth wave? I know we've talked a little bit about some American states, including Louisiana, that have seen really high numbers. 
Um, Cam says, I think the best protection for these people, these young people, is for everybody who's eligible to get a double vaccine. I haven't seen a lot where Cameron and I disagree yet, but he says, number three, protecting compromised people. This earmuffs kids. He says, this is horseshit. He says, pre-COVID mainstream media, uh, nationally speaking, including in my province in Alberta, were, did, did anybody really give a hoot about people that weren't vaccinated, spreading preventable diseases like measles? What's so different now, wonders Cameron? I guess we could get into a, a, a bit of a mess the muck and mire, as we say, comparing measles or polio to covid. But we'll take his point. He says, with regards to vaccine hesitation and, and conspiracy theorists, so to speak, we've, we've conducted a lottery, the lotto vax. What other incentives can can government do? He says, I don't believe in forcing vaccines onto people. I do believe that businesses and workplaces have the right, though, to enforce restrictions to prevent adversely affecting their businesses, whether that's wearing masks or keeping people separated in office buildings, what have you. He says there's there, there's significant data showing it's the unvaccinated that largely wind up in hospitals and ICU beds. I feel like he's been making these notes from stuff we have been talking about on the show. So I'm waiting for the point where he says he feels like we've been one sided because I feel like I see eye to eye with him on a lot of this stuff. He says, number one, with regards to mandatory isolation, keep in mind, we've talked to Professor Timothy Caulfield about vaccine hesitancy. We've talked to others about the psychology of it, about effective government programs. Keep in mind our Real Talk question of the week through Y Station asked you, Real Talkers, what you think the role of government should be in combating vaccine hesitancy and where you'd like to see government spending money, you know, billboards, vaccine lotteries, what have you. He says, with regards to mandatory isolation, let's be honest, this government didn't enforce this at all. He says, remember that church? I mean, that's kind of apples and oranges, right? It wasn't mandatory isolation of positive cases. That was people gathering. That was a ban on indoor gatherings with, with more than a certain number of people. He says, if anything, I think that I think that this prevents there being a false sense of security for people at risk. People who think COVID's a hoax probably didn't isolate anyway because it's just a flu. So individuals should act on their own. This is maybe where Cameron and I might disagree, because I think if a person doesn't take COVID seriously, even if they know that they're COVID positive, perhaps the only thing that's going to keep them isolated is the threat of prosecution, is the threat of consequence. He says, tell your employers to not allow sick people to be in at work. Don't let them be part of your social circle when they're sick. He says, I've enjoyed a cold free year and a half, and I hope for that streak to continue. Cam says, now, listen, maybe some of this has been addressed and maybe I've missed some shows. He says, I'm open to being wrong, but just because somebody else, in other words, someone outside of Alberta, another jurisdiction hasn't taken this approach doesn't make it wrong. Somebody always has to be first. And I'd rather lead the nation and maybe the world into the post covid reality. But I do understand hesitation among people, especially if you experience the worst that covid could do. Let me add on aside from dying. Because, you know, you're not there to talk about it if you did. He says, let's keep the conversations going. I look forward to hearing more that from Cam, who strikes me as an extremely reasonable person. He did acknowledge maybe he's missed some interviews. I would I think that the, the Dr. Joe Vipon interview we had was great. The Dr. James Talbot interview from yesterday, former chief medical officer of health, was a huge eye opener. Dr. Lenora Saxinger, who joined us from Family Vacation, which we really appreciated, provided balanced commentary. Dr. Joe Vipon talked to us about being targeted by the premier's staffers. I mean, those are four 
off the top of my head today. I mentioned Professor Timothy Caulfield was, I think, another really good one. Hoyles, am I missing anything? I'm putting you on the spot here, but off the top of your head. I mean, those are five that I would say if Cameron and others haven't seen those, um, you're going to hear from some different opinions. Of course, some of them are more political than others, right? We talked to Lisa Young the other day who said she's not as opinionated as some, but she took a political science approach to this and her take on it. I, I, I appreciate the email. I really do. Um, the fact that there isn't uh, a myriad, like uh, a cacophony of people that are pro uh, shutting down tracking and testing and tracing and all the like is because they aren't out there. In other words, you're saying that there's not widespread public support for the position that Dr. Dina Hinshaw, Minister Tyler Shandor, and Premier Jason Kenney took. Correct. Jared, Jared Campbell in our roundtable didn't seem to have much of a problem with it. He's a smart guy. I think, I think maybe, you know, for some people, I wonder if, and I will say this, for a lot of people, I mean, this is, this is in life, too, on social media. There's, there's like angry chatter, and you can believe if something's going sideways, if your business is under fire on social media, it can be the worst day of your life, mm. and you believe that people are going to be spitting in your face when you walk down the sidewalk, slashing your tires when you park your car, stealing your bike seat just to make life difficult, and then you realize that the average person isn't that person, that there's not anger and, and, and everywhere. And I wonder if a lot of people just go, I, I'm not going to step into this one. I have my personal feelings on this, but I'm just not going to step into this one. I'm curious to know. I will say, I think a very powerful indicator of public opinion has been the sustained demonstrations, these protect our province demonstrations in Calgary, Red Deer and Edmonton. I know we're talking a lot about Alberta today, but I mean that's been the case day after day after day. Hundreds of people showing up. That's a pretty strong statement sent to this provincial government. We also wanted to touch on a story. I, I just want to acknowledge it. I'm not sure I even really have a lot to say about this. I'm curious to know where real talkers will land a video is making the rounds or originally, I think, uncovered or at least sent in from a source to Vice News who pushed it out. And now everybody's talking about it. A Catholic priest in our home city of Edmonton from Our Lady Queen of Poland Parish is now apologizing. Uh, yeah. After this, now we've subtitled it for you, but I'll read along. Here's what this priest, Reverend Marcin Miraniak, said on july 18th here's a portion of that sermon there are reports there are reports that say why the children died he's talking residential schools of natural causes they were buried at regular cemeteries which is why we're living in a huge lie they want to deceive us. These lies in history will be told. This is why I am telling you all this, my dears. Lies in history. He went on to say that he was in Kamloops, B.C. a while ago, so he asked to see the mass graves at a residential school site there. He didn't identify himself as a priest. I'm not sure if it's relevant or not, but he was told that he could not visit the site because the area was sacred and he and he brought up the graves of murdered jews in poland during world war ii as a comparison said that though despite the fact that historians have concluded that these polish jews were murdered by christian neighbors in july of 1941 he said it's a great lie said the german nazis were to blame says the the jewish community raised the alarm this is sacred ground so you can't dig there right 
making the implication there. So, of course, people are losing it following these comments. Essentially, what this is, is residential school denial. I mean, how insulting. So he's apologized, of course. A spokesperson for the archdiocese was made aware of Moraniak's statements on Tuesday, immediately requesting an apology. The priest apparently delivered the apology to the Edmonton Archbishop, Richard Smith, through the vicar general of the archdiocese. That's kind of how it works in Catholicism, a whole bunch of levels. That's kind of the whole thing. You don't get to go straight up to the big guy upstairs, nor straight out to the public, it would seem. People will say, well, Ryan, he apologized. Why are you even talking about this? He apologized. I don't know the reverend. I don't know the priest. I don't know his heart. What I do know is that I would suspect that the apology was not suggested, rather mandated. They say that they're evaluating what his future will look like. I would suspect he might hang him up. Might be time to go. What it reminds me, and we're reminded this almost every single day, is that these attitudes still exist. A listener an audience member reached out to us earlier this week and said, hey, what's going on with the residential schools? Like, we haven't heard about it for a while. And we were reminded of that yesterday with Herb Lair, who joined us, the president of the Métis Settlements General Council. We talked about that. He's a survivor of the 60s scoop. And we were reminded of the conversations that still need to occur because we know that for a lot of people, there's either a lack of understanding, maybe it's willful ignorance, whether it's cynicism, racism, maybe, systemic, that stands in the way of acknowledging this horrific element of Canadian history, writing it off as lies, right? You saw what happened with Brian Pallister, the premier of Manitoba, resigning this week, saying he's on his way out. And what powerful conversations we've had on the show understanding some of the background there and why Manitobans and Canadians were so appalled at the position that Premier Pallister and his government took on the validity of these survivors' stories. Some of them so horrific that I've not brought myself to be able to talk about them on this show because I can't even repeat the words, some of them, of how horrible some of these schools were, how horrible, how traumatizing these experiences were for thousands and thousands of indigenous people never mind the ripple effects of the families i mean i was reading yesterday a letter that had been sent to indigenous parents who had their kids someone will take issue with my language and i already retracted who had their kids at residential schools who had their kids taken from them taken to residential schools and the letter talks i mean in such a condescending way if you ever got a letter like that these days you would show up and bang your fist on the door you'll say ryan you have clearly no understanding of the power dynamic there i acknowledge i'm just saying the language it will be your honor to have your children back at home for christmas this year if And by the way, at your expense, if they are returned to the school late for the January session, you will not have your children at home next Christmas. It's just like this one element. The more you read, the more you dig. Metaphorically or otherwise, 
the more we learn these attitudes, this priest, these need to be confronted and talked about and flushed out. I don't expect to say anything profound here today except to make a commitment to you, our audience, that we will continue to follow these stories and these discussions. I want to also point out that you can contact the National Indian Residential School Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. Some amazingly important resources that are there. You can send us your thoughts to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Many of you do. It's become, I hope, an outlet. If you have something to get off your chest, if you'd like to take issue with something you've heard on the show, if you'd like to suggest a guest, somebody that you think would be great for the Real Talk audience, we would love to hear from you. A reminder, we're off next week. But the week after that, following Monday, we'll kick it off with positive reflections. And we'd love to hear some of the stories where you're finding rays of sunshine. Some of the stories where you're making community connections, some of the ways that your fellow human beings have encouraged you. You can send those in. Make sure you title them Positive Reflections to Talk at RyanJesperson.com. Our friends at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge want to remind you that, well, the story across the country is true. Selection's tough when it comes to new rigs, including those Ram trucks that Canadians have loved back-to-back-to-back wins as the Motor Trend Truck of the Year. They're always buying gently used pre-owned trucks and SUVs at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep. A really great opportunity right now if you'd want to maybe cash up, maybe you want to upgrade your ride, or maybe you just want to get out of making those monthly payments. You can bring your vehicle in unannounced. The staff at Sherwood or St. Albert Dodge will be happy to take a look. They'll give you, make you an offer, really, an assessment and give you an offer on the spot. And this is a great opportunity for a lot of people. It also means that the pre-owned inventory is looking better than it has in a long time at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep. We're proud to partner with them. You can link to their websites under the Sponsors tab on our website. Also want to remind you that the team at Local Waste takes pride in fighting for your business. They love to talk trash. They're going to prove it in just a second. They also are willing to commit their resources. They've done it time and time again to get you and your business out of a bad garbage or recycling collection deal. They know there's bad contracts out there. They know there are bad actors in the industry, quite frankly. Integrity is one of their core values. You can learn more at localwaste.ca. You can give them a call. Follow the number on the website. Chris, Lauren, Mikkel will be happy to talk to you on what they can do to get you into a business relationship that works for you with Local Waste. Each and every Friday, our friends at Local Waste also give us an opportunity to blow off a little steam. These are emails that we've received to our inbox through the week. It's a feature we call Trash Talk. All right, this one from Marcus, who said uh, non-political trash talk. Jess, boy, I know you love these ones. I was on my way back from Kelowna this weekend. I'm so fed up with prairie drivers who don't know how to make their way through the mountains. I love it. Marcus just picking a fight. Says, I'm sick and tired of assholes driving 80 while driving through the undivided double centerline sections on mountain roads. 
Assholes Driving 80 would be an amazing band name. Agreed. Assholes Driving 80. Wow! He says there's these curves and then you hit passing lanes and then everybody guns it to 120. If you're going out for a Sunday drive through Rogers Pass, when you hit the passing lane, keep your speed constant. I shouldn't have to hit 150 to pass your stupid Suburban. Driving Highway 1 with a toddler in the backseat is stressful enough without dealing with dumbass prairie drivers who are afraid of a slight bend. Quick note to Marcus, baby in the back seat, don't be driving 150. That's just a public service note, just a safety note from your buddy Jespo. This one from Keith, who says it's rant time. To everybody that insinuates that restaurant owners are all asshole managers making stacks of cash on the backs of the disenfranchised. Many owner-operators are working side-by-side with amazing people that are both well-paid and enjoy their jobs. It's hard, sweaty, stressful, and exciting work. We as an industry struggle with staffing and the misconceptions that come with what we do, but my wife wife and I thank our team every single day when they smile at some cranky blue waffle of a human as they bitch we won't guarantee them in and out service in 30 minutes. That from Keith, restaurant owner. What about this one from Mike who says, I wanted to point out to real talkers that many countries, including Canada, are not paying prize money to Paralympians for earning a medal. This is asshattery. He says they should be entitled to the same payout as their Olympic counterparts and it's time for Canada to step up. He says also just to note that the para in Paralympics is not for paraplegic, but parallel as they occur alongside the Olympics. These athletes deserve all the support they get and more, and that includes coverage. He says, I'd like to give a personal shout out to Caitlin Wright and the rest of Team Canada competing in the sitting volleyball event. Good luck to our Canadian women. That from Mike. How about this one from Gerald who says, I'm wondering to the minister, Tyler Shandro, Alberta's Minister of Health, what you're doing appointing your buddies to the Alberta Health Services Board when they have ethical dilemmas like sitting on a board of a company that profits from changes, <coughs> Jack Mintz, or maybe have no experience in the medical world whatsoever hartley harris please explain that from gerald this one from tyler who says you know our premier kind of reminds me of george costanza everybody think of that a self-centered guy who lives with his parents a series of failures everything he does wrong so maybe the better move might be to do the opposite aloha gate good bad coal mining good bad raise risking kids health good bad says tyler the tired nurse the parallels impossible to ignore how about this one from michael who says when it comes to edmonton's mayoral election i don't know yet who i want to win but i know who i don't on a scale from one it's totally democratic can i post a regular sized lawn sign for the candidate i detest with a giant x through it sure can michael he says i don't want to say who i'm talking about but he's like anti everything doesn't play well with others would make the city i love an absolute embarrassment in the pro column though his extremely petty actions directly led to the creation of an absolutely incredible new show podcast community and movement that will lead to his downfall that from michael i have no idea what he's talking about and finally this one from kyle who says neighbor number one i knocked on your door a few nights ago to alert you that two coyotes had gone into your yard and i'm saddened by our interaction you refused to answer your front door you asked me through the open window who i am and what i want neighbor number two when i knocked on your door to see if the coach wallet with cash inside was yours after i rang the bell multiple times you finally greeted me in unfamiliar and unfriendly fashion when has society become so scared that we can't even answer our own effing front door that's kyle's edit not mine what's happened to us 
Has the lockdown this year and a half made us ultra suspicious of everybody? We can do better. Kyle says, I'm glad you were able, neighbor number one, to bring your two cats inside that they were not eaten by those coyotes. And neighbor number two, I'm thrilled to hear that the young person who lost their wallet got their birthday money back. Eventually a happy reunion. Just think of all the alternatives in those scenarios had I not been so persistent. Signing off, much love, neighbor Kyle. If you have something in your personal life and experience a thought a theory or otherwise that you think would be a great fit for trash talk you know where to send it talk at ryanjesperson.com thanks to everybody who tunes in have an amazing weekend we're going to talk to you in nine ten days from now all the information on the website in the meantime make it a great one real talkers one love